Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. The following is an interview with Dr. Sanders Marble, Senior Historian at the U.S. Army Medical Department, Office of Medical History. Um, I have to start by saying that the views I'm giving today are mine, not the views of the Army or the Department of Defense or the United States government. Thanks again, Dr. Marble, for sitting down with us. Prior to U.S. entrance into World War I, there was a preparedness movement that called for taking measures to strengthen the U.S. military in case neutrality failed. Many people are aware of the officer training camps, the National Defense Act, and the increased military spending in the years leading up to 1917, but was there a medical preparedness movement? There was a medical preparedness movement. A number of American doctors had volunteered through the Red Cross over in Europe, gone over and uh, seen war casualties, uh, and come back thinking, if we get dragged into this, we should be ready. The famous neurosurgeon George Kreil writes a, a, a what I think is a planted letter in uh, the journal the Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics. He says... The leading civilian hospitals should organize uh, physicians and, and nurses, or surgeons, doctors, and nurses, to be ready in case there's a war. And because these are people already work together in, in civilian life, they can work together well uh, if the military needs them. And if the military doesn't need them, then nothing's been lost. They just all they have done is say yes, I'm ready to go if there's a war. Uh, and the army of course, is very interested in this, and and I, that's why I think the Army has planted this, is because Kreil was friends with the Surgeon General of the Army, uh, and the Army is working hand-in-glove with the American Red Cross at this time, which, under its charter of the time, was kind of a paramilitary organization. Not an armed paramilitary organization, but an organization that, that uh, helped the military. So the clinicians uh, volunteer and say, if there's a war, we'll be ready. The Red Cross raises money to buy the equipment and store it in the various cities uh, that, that organize these base hospitals. And the Army says, why, thank you very much. That's very generous and public-spirited of you, and we'll be certain to take very good care of you if there's a war. So these, uh, so these doctors have gone over and, and seen uh, the surgical problems of the war published those things for their uh, uh, fellow uh, surgeons and fellow doctors to learn from, and they come back and then organize uh, the, the, a medical preparedness movement. So how prepared is the medical community when the U.S. enters the war in 1917, and what are the biggest challenges to mobilization? The medical community has been watching the European war, they have been seeing new diagnoses like shell shock. They've been seeing new clinical challenges like the poison gases. Uh, they've been seeing new lessons in surgery uh, and blood transfusion come about. Uh, they are very interested in this. Uh, they don't know how it's going to affect their clinical practice, but they know that, that the, the clinical practice of medicine will change uh, in peacetime whether or not there's a war. 
What they aren't ready for is, and the Army's not ready for, is the scope of the war. The, the U.S. Army goes from uh, under 125,000 men in, in 1917 to 4 million in, at the end of 1918. And tw 19 out of every 20 doctors in the Army in 1918 had not been in, had any relationship with the Army before. So they don't know how to do anything in the Army, how to, how to order supplies. They don't know necessarily how to train enlisted men because they don't need to. So the big challenge is just the scale. There's no national database of anything because there's no databases. You've touched on this a little bit, but can you describe the relationship between the U.S. Army, the Surgeon General, and the Red Cross? The Surgeon General of the Army it was an Army officer. He was a two-star general. And his job was to uh, advise the Army as a whole on, on medical practice, to oversee medical practice, and then uh, liaise with the medical community. The Surgeon General had a, uh, a close working relationship with the Red Cross. There was a senior uh, doctor uh, colonel on duty with the Red Cross. The Red Cross was organized to raise money and provide supplies for the Army uh, Medical Department. It was uh, used to provide first aid training. The Red Cross also does things like organize sock knitting uh, clubs and, and bandage rolling clubs, uh, but um, the Red Cross is, is largely used to mobilize people for the medical uh, department. And it's the, the one route to become a a nurse in the military. You, the military outsourced uh, all recruiting of, of nurses to the Red Cross. The Red Cross had good relations with uh, nursing schools. So every, every nurse that was in the Army had was also a Red Cross nurse because they had had told the Red Cross, I'm ready to serve in, in the Army and the, or the Navy. So you'll see people whose papers say they're a Red Cross nurse and, and they're also an Army nurse. What were the standard medical units of an American division? And when it comes to medical care, are divisions able to handle everything in-house? There were medical personnel with an infantry regiment well, and with artillery units and engineers and machine guns. Those men were to basically apply bandages and carry the wounded and, and uh, sick out. On, in, on litters. A division would have four ambulance companies uh, which had ambulances, they also had uh, a, an aid station, and they had more litter bearers, and they had uh, a division had four field hospitals which were very lightweight organizations. They were meant to operate under tents. Uh, they did not have x-ray machines. They're really just a place to keep you for a few days if you're very lightly wounded or sick uh, and can return to duty very quickly. If you are worse off than that, then you would be evacuated to what they called an evacuation hospital, which was out of the division. You would that Evacuation hospitals had x-ray machines, they had nurses, they had pharmacies, they had all kinds of equipment that a field hospital didn't, uh, much less mobile, but could operate, uh, offer a much higher standard of care. And then from an evacuation hospital, if you needed it, you would go back, probably by rail, to what they called a base hospital, where you would convalesce. 
The first line of treatment was the soldier himself. Um, what kind of medical kit did each soldier carry? Soldier carried a bandage. And that was it. The, the bandage was not in a waterproof container and also was supposed to be held on by a uh, safety pin. So it really wasn't convenient to do to yourself if you were wounded. It was not really convenient to do to your buddy with the safety pin. And since it wasn't waterproof in the, the mud of the trenches, you probably were not going to get a dry bandage. All right, so after taking care of yourself, if you were able, what happened? Where do you go from the battlefield to one of the field hospitals for your division? World War One is the first time the Army pushes medical personnel from the rear of the infantry battalion up forward. They assign two aid men. The term medic wasn't common then. But they, they take two enlisted men and uh, per company uh, to be the, one, the first ones to put the bandage on, uh, and then they will help you back to the battalion aid station where there's a physician to treat you, uh, to give you a tetanus serum if that's indicated, to bandage you more carefully, to put a splint on you, uh, and then they would carry you back on a litter to the ambulance company. Where at the ambulance company's dressing station, you would be checked again because this this can take a while, this can take several hours because of the battle's still going on. They would check you out at the, the dressing station, then load you on the ambulance, drive you back to the rear, uh, to the field hospital. Uh, one of the field hospitals would usually be used as a triage. That, that's when the word triage enters the English language, to sort the wounded out, to, well, and to sort the sick out from the wounded and the gassed from the sick and the, the psychiatric patients uh, from all the others. And then uh, one hospital would typically be used to take care of the sick, uh, one would be used to take care of the gas patients, uh, and one would be augmented with extra surgical teams and a uh, portable x-ray machine to provide forward surgery. Many people think about World War I as the first war with motorized ambulances, but were most of the AEF's ambulances motorized? About three-quarters of the frontline ambulances were motorized. The uh, three ambulance companies were supposed to be motorized and the fourth one horsed, which gave a good mix of capabilities because the horses were better off-road than the narrow-tired motor vehicles of, of 1918, which tended to very quickly bog down or the tires would pop and the ambulance would not have a lot of cross-country mobility. On the roads, the uh, motor vehicles could move faster and there was also a, a significant shortage of animals for traction in World War I. Uh, so they end up uh, motorizing somewhat more than three-quarters of the ambulance companies. That's in the division, uh, behind the division, where the roads are more likely to be usable. Essentially, all of the ambulances were motor ambulances. To switch gears a bit, how much warning did hospitals and medical personnel have about offensives? Obviously, operational security is important, but what did the medical personnel know? Did they know to be prepared for an influx of casualties? Usually, yes. Uh, it's a, a sign that something's up when you see a bunch of hospitals coming to an area and a, a bunch of units of any kind coming to an area. The people it caused real problems for were the medical planners. Uh, if the operations staff don't tell you where the, the main thrust is going to be and how many troops are going to be involved. It's hard to, to organize enough hospitals 
or have them in the right places uh, to provide adequate medical care. There are times when this happened. One core was uh, only the core surgeon was shown the map, and he had to then tell his his staff a little bit that he could remember from having uh, looked at the map. Were there any differences in the U.S. Army's medical response to the Meuse-Argonne offensive as opposed to the reduction of the San Miguel salient? Yes. The big difference is that there was very little fighting at San Miguel. They prepared as carefully as they could, and then the Germans were retreating right away. So we captured more prisoners than we had casualties, and, and there really weren't any lessons to learn. Then they go into the Meuse-Argonne, and instead of the Germans retreating, uh, we take 30,000 casualties in the first few days. And the hospitals are overwhelmed. They, they don't have enough beds for those patients. They don't have enough ambulances to move them out. They don't have enough, there's just not enough space on the roads with uh, uh, congestion as vehicles are trying to bring supplies and troops forward. Uh, on a one-lane road, that means that there's no space to take to drive an ambulance to the rear. So patients are 50 or 60 hours before they get to an operating room, and many of them are infected. The hospitals don't have enough space for the patients that do arrive, so they try to pick out the less wounded soldiers, put them on a train, and send the train back before the soldiers operated on back to a, a base hospital. And that's... A, a good fallback. It's really the only fallback uh, other than just not operating on the, them in time. Uh, but trains could be two or three days getting shunted aside wait, waiting for another train to come forward. Uh, so some patients would get back to the base hospitals and have severe infections. But they, they start working on that during the Meuse-Argonne. They get the doctors operating faster. They say, reduce your peacetime standards. Cut faster. Cut more. Uh, don't don't be as fancy in your operations. They uh, organize uh, minor surgery teams to focus on high volume, simple uh, surgeries. And by the second phase of the, of the Meuse Argonne, uh, they don't have. They only have a few hundred pa- uh, preoperative patients that are taken back to uh, the base hospitals instead of the twelve thousand or so in the first phase. If you had to evaluate the U.S. Army's medical response to World War I, how would you rate it? They did the best they could. Uh, they were effective in looking for lessons. They, they tried to learn from observation instead of by doing it themselves. Uh, so they, they looked to the French for lessons. They had observers before US, the U.S. joined the war with the French and the British, sending back the lessons and tried to implement those. They did things like pushing surgery forward to uh, save more lives and reduce the amount of time a soldier would be in the hospital. They don't have the pharmaceuticals to prevent diseases and and to treat a lot of diseases, so they end up with a a lot of sick soldiers. But if we don't have the, the drugs today, we have a lot of people sick. They fail, uh, essentially fail with psychiatric care because they don't know what to do. They do the best they can, but there is no good long-term care for somebody who's had shell shock. People are in mental hospitals for decades after the war because there's no treatment at that point.
So what is the overall legacy of World War I for U.S. Army medicine? The Army's legacy is trying to do it better the next time. They, the Surgeon General after the war is uh, the sur chief surgeon in France during the war, and he has a laundry list of things that he wants to fix. Uh, he organizes the reserves so that mobilization will be better. He has, gets a, a medical field service school organized so that doctors will be better trained to plan and, and medical care in the field for large organizations and small. He, want, he lays in supplies. He builds up the hospital system in the U.S. He's trying everything he can to prepare for war, but we don't know when the next war is going to be. Uh, and uh, with the, the Great Depression intervening, there's very little money uh, or will for uh, military spending. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Marvel. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.